Hello and welcome to the second episode of my new podcast, Do Yourself No Harm. I'm Dr Claire Ashley and I'm a GP, burnout survivor and mental health advocate. For today's episode, I discuss the importance of compassion and humanism in medicine with Dr Laura Varta, a US-based oncologist. I thought it was important to discuss how connection to our patients makes a huge difference to our experience of our jobs. And certainly when I was at the height of my burnout, I really struggled to connect with my patients. And I saw them more as problems that I had to solve rather than as people who needed my help. I definitely experienced the disconnect, the fatigue and lack of empathy that comes with burnout with my patients. I lost the joy and satisfaction that patient interaction had given me previously. And that matters. For me, it's a therapeutic relationship with our patients that makes our jobs as rewarding and as privileged as they are. Humanism and compassion in medicine is not just about improving patient care and our relationship with patients. It's also about enhancing and improving the clinician experience and improving recruitment and retention. In this podcast, we also talk about how COVID has changed our jobs, how the impact of sleep deprivation and the lack of physical and mental rest affects us. We also discuss the impact of poor staffing and issues with recruitment and retention as well. I hope you enjoy our chat today and if you do please hit like subscribe and leave a review before we get started i just wanted to share a quick reminder that my brand new subscription and membership for medics is now available from my website and if you're interested in knowing more or signing up please head over to www.doyourselfnoharm.com I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Laura Varta as my guest for today's podcast episode, which is all about humanism in medicine. Dr. Varta is a US-based oncology fellow, writer, and speaker. She has published published a number of narrative medicine essays and is currently working on her first novel. She writes passionately about humanism and compassion in medicine over on her Instagram page at DocLauraVarta, which is where I first came across her work. Laura is particularly vocal about improving doctor working conditions, not just for the experience of the clinician but also to directly improve patient care. She has also developed a tool to help both patients and clinicians simplify health called the SMILE system, which is now being used in schools and clinics in both the US and the UK. So Laura, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Hi Claire, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. Let's start by talking about what humanism in medicine is and why it matters for doctors. So humanism in medicine is this idea that patients are a very simple idea, right? Something that we knew before coming into medical school is this idea that patients are human beings. They have a story. They're more than just a problem list or a list of diagnoses. They're whole human beings. And when we talk about humanism in medicine, it's really recognizing and remembering that this is a human being in front of us who needs our compassion and our care. And when I write and talk about humanism in medicine, I also like to think about the clinician, remembering that when we talk about humanism in medicine, it's not just for our patients and recognizing their humanity, but it's also remembering that we as clinicians are human beings and recognizing our humanity and honoring our humanity as well. So obviously there you talk there about a little bit about the definition. What do you think that means in practice for patients and for doctors? Yeah, I think in practice for patients, that means... Um, we're having a busy day, we're seeing a lot of people, but remembering that, at least for me, every time I, I take care of patients with cancer, and every time I wash my hands outside of the room, or I'm, I'm about to step in that threshold of entering through the door, I remind myself, this is a person who needs my care. And I think it, it really is, how do we communicate with them? How do we respond to their needs? I think 
big part of this is in our in our verbal and our nonverbal communication, mm-hmm. sitting down with them. It's trying to remove distractions of our phone and our computer if we can. It's looking at them. It's listening to them. It's being uh, a presence with them when they need it. And of course, we have stressors in our days. We have interruptions. We have time pressures, right? All of these things. Um, but just making sure that we're giving our patients our time and our presence and trying to get to know them as human beings. Who are they beyond a diagnosis? And I think when we know our patients, when we connect with them, we are better at, we're better healers and we're better at the work. Yeah. Obviously, with COVID recently, a lot of how we interact with our patients has changed um, and the way that we work has changed significantly, hasn't it? What sort Mm -hmm. of barriers do you think COVID has brought to the doctor-patient therapeutic relationship? I think this has become harder for patients in the hospital that have a diagnosis of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much protective equipment. There's gowns and gloves and masks and Mm -hmm. shields and and face masks, of course. And I think that there's, there, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, it was get out of the room as fast as possible, do what you need to do and get out of the room. And I do think that there was an element of connection that was missed there. Now, the way that the pandemic is now, most of my patients, I am face to face with them. They're in my clinic, they're getting labs, they're having a physical exam, they're getting chemotherapy. So uh, thankfully, I still have most of my experience with patients is face to face. But of course, there still is that barrier of the mask. And Sometimes family members don't come because of the, right, just some of our requirements with vaccination and things. And so there is there is still a bit of disconnect there, I think, without being able to fully see a patient's facial expression or fully feel like they are known and I'm known. Things that help with that is, of course, I examine all of my patients' mouths and they're not having mouth sores or thrush or things like that. And so I try to really, when I do that, I try to, for a brief moment, look at my patient as who they are beyond you know, through the mask. And I think that that helps me to, uh, to feel connected to my patients, but it is hard. I do, I do feel that there has been some disconnection with patients in the pandemic. Yeah. And from a patient point of view, how do you think that the pandemic has affected them when they come to see you as a, as a patient with cancer? I think that there is a bit more fear, of course, coming to, coming to a clinic and seeing a patient, seeing a doctor who's taking care of their cancer, they're already, they already carrying anxiety about what is the can, the scan show? What is the, what are the labs going to show? What is the doctor going to tell me? Is the plan going to change? There's already already this anxiety that comes with seeing a doctor. And that's true for any doctor, right? Uh, Not just a cancer doctor, but I think for my patients, they also fear contracting COVID when they come into the clinic, when they sit in the waiting room, when they are in the infusion center. So I do think there's that added fear of, my immune system is suppressed because of this disease and this treatment. And now is my, right, being seen by my doctor a risk because I'm having to go through the scanner and get labs and write all these other steps before they see me. And so I think that it has increased the anxiety of my patients. Yeah. And are there any steps that you take proactively to try to manage that potential anxiety? What would you do as the clinician to allow them to feel connected to you? Mm-hmm. So I'm always, of course, wearing my badge so they can see who I am without a mask. And sometimes, you know, I will, I will be like, this is who I am without my mask. Um, I, I try to be extra intentional about nonverbal communication. And so this means when I walk in the room, the very first thing I do with my patients is I sit down and I, you know, maybe if I know them, I say, how are you doing? And then I just pause. 
or if it's the first time I'm meeting, I'm meeting them, I say, what brings you to my clinic? What brings you here? We know that doctors interrupt patients about every 11 seconds. That's what the research shows. We also know that patients don't need, when they study this, uh, at least through research, they, they have found that patients don't need more than 35 to 50 seconds to say, really, what brings them in? I have chest pain, it's radiating down my arm, whatnot, or I'm feeling these symptoms. And so the practice that I've adopted is to walk in the room and to ask them a simple question and then to just sit, step back, sit back and remove my uh, distractions and just listen to them. And of course, I'm going to be asking clarifying questions. I'm going to be using appropriate, you know, support words and physical touch if appropriate. Um, but I think as much as possible, conveying to my patients that I'm a person who's there that they can trust and who yeah. will support them. And then we yeah. also know that a simple statement of support is, is for patients with cancer can significantly reduce their anxiety. It doesn't have to be a two minute long statement, just something like, what you're going through is really difficult. And I want you to know that we're not go you're not going through this alone. We're here to support you and we'll be with you every step of the way. So I try to use communication like that to help them feel supported. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um that what you just said there about doctors interrupting patients after an average of eleven seconds, I did not know that. But that doesn't surprise me at all because I think that um as doctors we 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 want to get the most information out of our patients, don't we, when we're having a conversation and a consultation with them. And so we want to be asking mm -hmm. them questions. And so, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes we just have to stand back and um, allow the patient to tell us their story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes yeah. it's hard not to, we're, we're trained. We live, at least here in the United States, as an interruption culture. I'm getting paged, I'm getting interrupted. And I'm also taught to appropriately interrupt my patient. If my patient is telling me a symptom that I'm very worried about, I'm going to want to probe that more, right? Because as a doctor, it's our job to figure out what are the things and the symptoms and the pieces of the puzzle that I should put together to be concerned or to not be concerned. And so I think we're really trained to ask those. Of course we are in our you know, review of systems is we're probed to ask those questions. But I, and I absolutely do that, but I try really hard to give them the first 30 to 60 seconds of that encounter with them just so that they can say what's on their mind and they feel heard. And then I can go in and ask all of my follow-up questions. Sure. You mentioned there about our training. What was your experience of learning to communicate with patients in medical school where you taught the importance of compassion and kindness um, when communicating with patients? I don't know. And maybe I had an official lecture, but I'm not sure that I did. I'm not sure that I did. I a lot of, of learning in terms of communication and compassion um, is meant to be done um, in those third and fourth years here in the United States, those last two years of our medical school, when you're doing a lot of shadowing and you're in the hospitals and you're in the clinics. And, and I'm sure, Claire, this is true for you as well, that in our training, we see hundreds and thousands of different doctors and we get to observe them. And I can tell you that if you're listening to this and you're in medical training, I ask you to just simply pay attention. Pay attention to the doctors who communicate really well and take pieces of what do they do really well. And then pay attention to doctors who maybe don't have the same level of communication skills and don't adopt certain practices that you see. If, if a doctor sees a lot of poor communicators, I fear 
that these doctors are going to learn to become poor communicators, to interrupt and to um, dismiss patient concerns and to see, trying to see as many patients as possible. We once had a, I once had a doctor say, if I talk to patients, that's like burning money, right? So there are all sorts of different um, ways and approaches to communicating. And I, so I do think that we should in medical training be more intentional mm-hmm. about having sessions on communication and also mm-hmm. um, practicing it. Yeah. And as I've become a resident and a fellow, I have opted in to do additional communication training sessions. Mm-hmm. There's a, a session called Vital Talks that's here in the United States and I believe across the world now. And I've participated in that um, three years now. And I feel like there are there are programs and um, tools that can be of use, but I, I wish that they were a bit more standardized for all mm-hmm. trainees. Yeah. I do think it is something that is gradually changing. So uh, one of my roles now is to help teach first and second year medical students effective consulting skills. And the whole of the first term for the first years is about kindness, compassion for yourself and for the patient as well. So I think things are changing from the bottom up. Obviously, it's going to take five, six years for those students to graduate and then to take those skills forward. Um, But I do see a movement in the UK in particular, moving towards more humanism in medicine and compassionate communication with our patients. It's really, really amazing. And I'm so proud to be part of it. But obviously, for those of us that are postgraduate, we perhaps have missed that um, part of our medical training to the detriment, I think, sometimes of our relationships with our patients. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say really quickly that I do think that those sessions do exist. They may not be mandatory, Mm -hmm. but for they do exist on most medical campuses that those types Mm -hmm. of lectures are available. So I would encourage anyone who maybe not have access to that to see if that is something that is still Mm -hmm. available through an avenue at your university. Yeah. And what I really liked about what you were talking there was about basically connecting to your patients on a personal level, on a human level, isn't it? And for me, that's where I get the most satisfaction out of my work is having those connections and those relationships with patients. Because really, if you don't have that connection, what is the point of our job? I'm with you all the Mm. way. I feel that when there have been parts of my training where I have been seeing so many patients who've been very sleep deprived and stressed and busy and trying to get to clinic and still right where I felt disconnected from my patients that I didn't know them mm-hmm. as people. And I feel like those are the times in my training that I have had the least satisfaction in my work and that it really is through the connection with my patients that every time I meet a new patient, I try really hard to know who they are beyond their diagnoses, their family their hobbies, their employment, um, their spirituality and religion. I like to know where they're from, right? Where they grew up. I like to know these things about my patient and what's important to them. That helps me to treat them better as a human being. And it also makes me feel like my work is meaningful rather than I'm just going through the motions and Mm -hmm. writing this chemotherapy, right? These are human beings that I'm taking care of. And I think that that helps when we connect with our patients. It makes us better at the work. But I also think it helps protect our ability to do this work for years to come, because when we care about what we do, we're more likely to want to continue it rather than leave the field of medicine as a whole. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And that leads me nicely on to my next question, because what you're talking there is about when we start to have that disconnect, it's when we start to lose our satisfaction, when we start seeing the patients as perhaps numbers or problems to be solved rather than as people, that's when we start to lose our job satisfaction. What what do you feel are the biggest issues that impact directly on our experience of work, our job satisfaction and on our mental health? I think that those who choose to go into this field are highly altruistic, compassionate people who really want to do the best thing for their patients. I, I do think that there are a number of factors within medical training and practice that contribute to um, exhaustion and burnout. Um, right now, of course, the pandemic has changed so much in our country for our medical trainees, and especially those our nurses and those who are in uh, internal medicine and critical care fields. And so what has happened has, rather than they're having these rotating every month, they rotate what they do. And normally, in normal times, you're having a month of intensive, you know, ICU care, you're having a month of night float, you're having a month of internal medicine wards or in the hospital, but then you have a block where you're just in the clinic, nine to five weekends off, maybe you're doing a research elective, and then you go back to nights. And so you it ebbs and flows, you have periods of time that allow for break and rest and restoration. And I think what's one of the largest challenges now is because our hospitals are so full, and patients are so sick, is that there's so much care that needs to be done, so that those doctors, those those residents, those medical trainees, and the, the nurses and the critical care doctors and internal medicine doctors, they're being pulled from their off time, from their easier time, where they were looking forward to their, their restoration time, and they're being pulled to work back at those high stress, high pressure, high demand loads. And so it's more stressor without those breaks. And I think that that is what the main challenge with the pandemic has been, is that they are looking forward to those periods of rest and they're simply not coming. Yeah. And then the other factor as well is simply the persistent, and in my opinion, completely unethical sleep deprivation and medical training and practice. Those are the two primary mm. factors that contribute to, to exhaustion. Mm. Should we talk a little bit more about how sleep deprivation affects doctors in particular? So here in the United States, I'm not sure how things are in the UK, We st our, our trainees still regularly work 28 hours straight. And during those 28 hours, there's typically very, very, if no, rest. And we also have a system of what's called home call. So doctors can take call overnight at home, but still have responsibilities to work the next day. So it can be up all night and work the next day. And then they're up all night and they work the next day. And that pattern can persist for sometimes uh, 72 hours at a time, but sometimes a week at a time, sometimes two weeks at a time. There's very little regulation when it comes to home call. And then in terms of doctors who are finished with their training and, and they're in their medical practice, there's no regulation about sleep deprivation. So there, it's very, very common in multiple fields, especially our surgical subspecialties that our doctors are taking call overnight all the time. And so they're just chronically sleep deprived. We know that sleep deprivation increases the risk for anxiety, depression, and suicide. We know that it increases the risk for a number of chronic illnesses like heart disease, diabetes, stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's. 
there's no there's no data that sleep loss is good for doctors or good for patients. And in fact, we have data that it's harmful, that tired doctors make more mistakes. They're more likely to injure a patient. They're more likely to get into a car accident. They're more likely to injure themselves with a needle stick. Um, and so there's just no good data, but yet, unfortunately, this continues to persist. Yeah. And I'm sure that, I mean, I definitely identified with some of the things you were talking about there. I I gave myself a needle stick when I was working in ITU mm. after I, when I was very, very sleep deprived and I recapped oh, no. a needle, which I would never have done in normal circumstances, but I'd done a 12 hour night shift the night before and then been cupped up all day by my very noisy neighbors who were having some sort of house party. Um, and oh, I, no. and I went to work on absolutely no sleep and it was dangerous and I made a mistake that could potentially have changed my life, but as it happened, it was all fine. Um, and obviously that was a mistake that, oh. that potentially harmed my physical health, but, um, I, I have mm-hmm. I've definitely noticed that when I'm sleep deprived, you, you're slower with your thinking. You're a little bit more, you're not as clear. You don't have that clarity. You're not sharp. You're not snappy. It's almost like you feel a bit drunk. I think sometimes when you're really sleep deprived and there have been moments where I haven't felt safe to drive home after a night shift, for instance, and you think, gosh, if I'm not safe to drive, how can I be safe to look after people's lives? Yeah. And we do know that there, there is data that people who are awake, not just doctors, but anyone that's awake for 24 hours has a level of impairment that's higher than being legally drunk. We know that sleep deprivation reduces your intelligence, it impairs memory recall, it decreases your attention. Uh, there is, it's, there's no data that this is actually helpful for patients or doctors and that it can really impair your mm-hmm. thinking and your, your physical abilities. So yeah. it's really important that we start to prioritize this as a culture. Why do you think there is so much resistance to changing the way that we work on our work patterns, um, given that the scientific data very clearly shows that this is not good for doctors and it's not good for patients. We, we practice in a culture that is very adherent to tradition. And this is a tradition of sleep deprivation and training for more than 100 years. There have been changes in the United States. There have been improvements. There, are, there have been um, reductions in the amount of work hours. So now it's reduced to 80 hours a week. However, there are issues with that. Because some, I've had many residents reach out to me uh, through social media and say, if I report more than 80 hours, it just, my, the website will not let me submit it. It just errors, the website errors. Or if they submit more than 80, the program coordinator will email and say, did you make a mistake? Let me fix that for you. Yeah. Right? So there are a lot of problems. So a lot of people learn to just under-report. And they have reduced the number of of hours you can work on a shift, but there are all sorts of creative ways around that as well. And so I I do believe that we need to really take a hard look as a group at the data and make some real changes. But I believe that resistance, part of it is our culture. Part of it is that there are still people who believe that this is okay because they have done it. And I feel... My, my heart really goes out to those who had to work those 100-hour weeks and be on call for 36 hours and be so exhausted. I worry about their, their short and long-term health. But I do think that there are those that believe that it's good for education and it's good for learning. And then lastly, it's a practical issue. It comes down to staffing and money. And so if you have a small residency program or you have a small hospital 
and you were counting on maybe a group of doctors to staff it, you either have to hire more people to split up that work, or you have to have more people who match in the residency. So either as a nation, we need to say, we need more medical trainees, we need more doctors, let's let them match and spread out the work. Or those hospitals simply need to hire more people to to help with that work. And I think that that's that's the main, that's the primary barrier is that it's expensive to hire. And as a nation, we still have not fully prioritized uh, expanding residency slots so that we can train more doctors. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of parallels between our healthcare systems. So even though you work in the US, which is a very different healthcare system to that that we have in the UK, we too have um, regulation in the UK. And we have a system for reporting breaches of our working hours and how many hours we're meant to be working but again when those hours are breached because of you know the fact that we're under a lot of pressure at the moment particularly with COVID with high volumes of patients and um, lots of complexity and chronic understaffing in the UK as well so we are about I believe 50,000 doctors short of what the EU average is okay, when we compare wow. numbers of doctors to numbers of patients so we are very very short of doctors and that's just in England that's not for the UK as a whole actually that data is for England wow. so wow. yeah we have this perfect storm of huge patient need and years and years of understaffing which means that for the doctors that are left in the system we are fatigued we are very very sleep deprived um, and it doesn't look in the immediate future, at least, that things are going to get better. I think the pandemic is amplifying that here as well. And I suspect in the UK, because the more pressure that you put on someone, if they have an avenue to leave, if let's say they have a spouse or partner that is financially solvent and they don't need to work, they're either going to reduce the amount of time they're working or leave medicine altogether. And there are a number of surveys that have looked at doctors that are in, in five years, are you planning to leave medicine or reduce how much you're working? And many, 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 many doctors reporting, yes, that they, and nurses as well, that they are looking for avenues out. And unfortunately, of course, if someone is making the decision that's best for them, of course, you know, they need to make the decision that's best for them. But when more people leave, that leaves whoever is left, there's going to be more work that's going to be piled on them. And so I think that the issue is going to become more challenging as the years progress. Yeah, it's exactly the same in the UK. Um, huge numbers of people planning to leave healthcare. What changes do you think need to happen um, that would directly impact on our working conditions and our mental health in order to prevent this potential mass exodus of, of staff? Going back to humanism and medicine, seeing having healthcare systems and hospitals see clinicians as human beings and valuing their humanity. That means reasonable workloads. That means prioritizing their physical and mental health. That means ensuring that they're not experiencing sleep deprivation as part of their training or practice. I think that those would be big steps in the right direction. And of course, staffing, right? If we can possibly recruit and hire and have better staffing, I think for our nursing, uh, our nursing colleagues in particular, and for our residents in particular, with more people that can split the work, they're going to be able to get back to 
connecting with their patients and going through their days without a level of rush and hurry and chest pain and, you know, shortness of breath and being able to do the work at a pace that is manageable. I think that those are some of the, the strategies that could make a real difference. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your smile scale? Because um, what I really like about your smile scale is it talks about the tools that we as individuals can try to use to improve our personal well-being. Um, so just do you just want to explain mm-hmm. a little bit about what the smile scale is? Sure. So I created the smile scale when I was a new mother, had a medical degree, a public health degree, and somehow was still not doing a great job caring for my health. And so I realized that I didn't need more information. I needed a system. I needed a way to check in with my health and say, based on data, these are the five things I should really try to prioritize in my life if I want to feel well today and also have health for the years to come. Now, I don't want this to be a tool, and I didn't for myself or for other people, to be another to-do list of things you're failing at, another measure to say, this is what you're not doing and you're not good enough. That's not the purpose of the tool. The tool is to really say, "These these are the things that promote my health. Is my job and my life set up to be able for me to prioritize my health. So it's a it's a scale that's five questions. It's a simple check-in tool, takes less than 30 seconds a day. Ask yourself this these five questions and they're yes or no questions. Each letter of the word smile stands for one uh, healthy behavior. So the first one is sleep. Am I getting at least seven hours of sleep at night? We know that as we've talked about, sleep is incredibly important for your physical and mental health. So if you're getting seven hours of sleep, give yourself one point. And if you're not, give yourself zero. The next one is move my body. Have I been physically active? We're not going to be marathon runners unless we have a lot of extra time, right? This just means being physically active as you go about your day, right? Ideally trying to get at least 30 minutes a day, but I believe that all activity counts, right? So have I been physically active? The answer, if that's yes, give yourself one point. If no, give yourself zero. The next one gets to reduction of stress in a healthy way. So inhale and exhale. Am I finding healthy ways to reduce my stress? Because we all have unhealthy ways that we can reduce our stress, right? But trying to trying to search for healthy things, maybe that's meditation, maybe that is deep breathing, maybe that's a practice of prayer, maybe that's walking in nature, maybe that's reading a book, maybe that's listening to music. But each day, am I doing at least one thing that I know is a healthy way to reduce my stress? If that answer is yes, give yourself one point. If no, that's zero. The next one gets to our social, our social connection. So it's love and connect. Am I meaningfully connecting with my core relationships? That's your partner, that's your children, that's maybe your good friend or your parents or whoever the are the one to three most important relationships in your life. We know that there's a been a, an 80-year study here in the United States at Harvard, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. We know that our social connections are incredibly important for our health. So if you are meaningfully connecting with those in your life, give yourself one point, if not zero. And then the last one is E, eat to nourish. Am I putting healthy foods in my body? Ideally, at least five servings of fruits and vegetables, but we know more is better. So am I eating things that are grown in the ground or on trees, things that are going to have antioxidants and phytonutrients that are going to help protect me from disease, but also help me to feel well. So that's five things, sleep, movement, inhale and exhale, reduction of stress, love and connection, and uh, eating nutritiously. 
And so then I give myself a daily scale. Sometimes it's, you know, my score is five and I tend to be feeling a lot better if I've scored a five, but there are days where it's a zero or a one or a two and I tend to not feel as well. And I like to use this in different seasons of my life and to use it as a reflection of does your job and do other factors in your life allow you to prioritize your health? Because you're a person, you're a human being, and you deserve the health that you strive so hard to give your patients. What I really like about your smile scale is that it's very evidence-based. So everything that you've mentioned there, we know genuinely, scientifically does make a difference to our mental well-being. So it's something that's easy to use and apply to our day-to-day lives, but also we know will make a difference. Well, thank you, Claire. And I like to use it with my patients as well. Mm -hmm. And we have an ongoing research study with patients with cancer uh, because it is simple. I have a background in public health and I really like simple tools. It's meant to be a way to check in with yourself and just to gently nudge you in the right direction, not to make you feel inadequate or that you're failing in these areas of your life, but just a reminder that these are things that can help you feel better and if possible, reflecting on your environment and your workplace and where, what are the, is it allowing you to be able to care for your health? So we've covered quite a lot about humanism in medicine and compassion today. To tie things up um, and finish off the podcast, what I'd like to ask is what three pieces of advice would you give any medical professional or trainee that is currently finding things difficult? Yeah, I would first say that it's not you. It's often the product of our healthcare system. It's not that you, if you find yourself uh, experiencing high levels of exhaustion, anxiety, depression, or even thoughts of harming yourself, know that you are not weak. Know that you do not lack resilience. Know that this is not your fault. And know that there are many, many people who care about you, who are advocating for you, and who want to make things better. The most meaning, especially for the medical trainees that we've talked about this, the way to hold on to this meaning in this career is to really hold on to that connection with your patients. As you go through your medical training, and we know this through research, that empathy actually declines over time. I would really encourage you to be very intentional about building compassion into your practice, almost as like it sometimes feels like you're trying to hold on to sand, right? Holding on to your empathy as you go through medical training. But continue to connect with why you entered this field and why you do this work and continue to connect with your patients as people. Just to round things up, Laura, where can we find you online? So I'm most active on Instagram. My handle is at DocLauraVater. So D-O-C-L-A-U-R-A-V-A-T-E-R. I also have a website that's lauravotter.com and there I have some of my writing as well as more about the smile scale. Thank you so much for being my official first guest. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you Claire for having me. I'm so excited about this podcast and so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much.